Think about this. What marketing material will people pay for and sit down and then consciously read? Almost none. No one would do that with a brochure or something like that, right? But yeah. with a book, if it's done well, that's exactly what they do. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. This episode was previously recorded and published on the Outperform podcast. I'm Bob Glazer, AP's founder and managing director, and today's quote is, ideas are easy, implementation is hard. Wise words from Guy Kawasaki. Our guest today, who I'm really excited to have here, is Tucker Max. Tucker's a guy who has a lot of fantastic ideas. He's been the author of several New York Times bestselling books, and he also knows too well how difficult it can be uh, to carry out those ideas. Tucker's only the third writer after Malcolm Gladwell and Michael Lewis to ever have three books on the New York Times bestseller list at one time. And this intimate understanding led he and Zach Obron to co-found Book in a Box, an industry-leading and disrupting company that helps make it easier for people to develop their ideas into books and get them published. And even though he's an expert on thought leadership and helping others become expert, this is part of the reason why uh, he fired himself as CEO of his company. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And so I know you'll really enjoy the wisdom of Tucker. He has some great ideas to share, and you'll appreciate his no BS style. So without further ado, welcome, Tucker, and great to have you on, man. Thanks. Thanks, Bob. Well, first, let me extend my gratitude to both you and Zach for coming up with Book in a Box. You guys were very instrumental in helping me get my first book, Performance Partnership, published and, and working on a few more books and saved me a, a lot of time and, and energy. So thanks for that. No, dude, it's my pleasure, dude. It's, it's the reason we started the company is so people like you can share your knowledge and wisdom like effectively instead of sitting there for 10 years wishing the book would be done and, and not getting it finished. So that jumps into my, my first question, which I'm sure a lot of people have. So before starting Book in a Box, as I mentioned, you're a best-selling author and you had three New York Times bestsellers. All of them were known for being outrageously entertaining and your crazy storytelling. What led you to move away from being a best-selling author to starting a, a firm that helps others self-publish and tries to disrupt the industry that you participated in? Yeah, so before I answer, it's a great question. Before I answer it, I got to brag a little bit because we I actually have four bestsellers. Four, because the fourth is on the list right now. Um, it, a lot of your readers will probably know Tiffany Haddish's book, The Last Black Unicorn. I'm sorry, listeners will know. It's been on the list for like two months. She's a pretty famous comedian. She was in uh, Girls Trip. Uh, she did her book with our company, and I was actually the scribe on that. She asked me to co-write it with her. And uh, so it's like actually my fourth book on the list. Uh, that has nothing to do with your question. It's good to see you're still in the kitchen cooking. <laughs> well, sometimes, man, I got to be. You know, she, you know, because comedy is one of those things that like, you kind of can't hire people to write comedy. You can hire comedy writers, but it's really, really hard. Get, you know, people trying to do comedy, we don't normally take as clients, but her, I did, and I kind of partnered with her, and so whatever. But that book is, is really good. All right, but to answer your question, so how do we get to this point? I was at an entrepreneur dinner, and I met a woman probably very similar to you, 
Bob, like had her own business. Uh, people have been asking her to write a book for a decade. Uh, she just didn't have the time or the desire to sit down and go through the awful, horrific process of writing a book yourself. And so she like didn't know who I was, but she knew I'd written books. And she comes up, she's like, oh, you're the book guy, right? And I'm like, yeah, of course, that's my only identity on earth. I'm the book guy. And so, and, you know, kind of like teasing her. And she's like, okay, okay, enough. Like, you need to help me get this book out of my head. And she's like, basically, like, you know, how do I get it on my head without writing it? And I kind of looked at her and I'm like, are you asking me how to write a book without writing it? And she's like, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, you can't do that. That's, you know, writing is literally in the word, you know, like there's no other way to write a book without writing it. And I started lecturing her about like hard work and all that kind of stuff. I think I threw out the quote, like, uh, you know, like everyone wants to be a star, but no one wants to put in the work and you know, all the stuff that snobby elitist writers say, I, like I said it all to her. And she rolled her eyes at me, stopped me, rolled her eyes at me and said, Tucker, are you an entrepreneur? I'm like, yeah, of course. She's like, yeah, I'm not sure about that. Because an, a real entrepreneur would help me solve my problem and not lecture me about hard work. <laughs> and I was like, it's like, bafangul. Like, I was so pissed at her. But she was 100% right. And so, of course, I became obsessed with, you know, like anyone who gets called out on something that they're wrong about, they become obsessed with it. And I became obsessed with solving this problem. How do I get a book out of somebody's head without them having to go through the process of writing the book? And then it hit me like two months later. It took me two months to think of this because I'm, I'm slow. People have been doing this for 2,000 years. They were called scribes. You know, like Socrates never wrote a word down. Plato did, right? Jesus never wrote a word down. The apostles did. Buddha never wrote anything down. His disciples did. Malcolm X didn't. Marco Polo didn't. You get on the list of incredibly influential authors who didn't write, physically write their own words down. I was like, well, you know, Jesus can do it. Why can't Melissa, which is her name. And so I, I, I called her up. I'm like, all right, we're going to try this thing. I'm going to do everything except the content. When I need content, I'm going to call you. And then uh, you're going to tell me everything you know, and we're going to go from there. And she's like, great. I honestly didn't think it was going to work, Bob, but it did. It worked really well. And um, now, you know, whatever, three and a half years later, here we are. So that was your first book. Yeah, for, yeah, it was called The Pop-Up Paradigm. Like, that's how crazy, I, I, like, Zach and I were the ones who worked on the book. The book is about pop-up retail, which I literally know nothing about. And even to this day, even though like I helped write the book, I kind of don't feel like I know anything about it. My job was just getting her knowledge out of her head, structured properly, and then like the book in her words and her voice, you know? Because like, it's not ghostwriting, right? A ghostwriter is like you hire someone to go write you a book about something and then you put your name on it. That's BS. We don't do that. So what was the before and after? This will lead to my next question. But what was the before and after for her on that book? Yeah. So the, the business results mean. Yeah. It was massive. Like, and you could tell your own version of this story. Like almost all our authors can. But it was like one of those things where it was like, let's see. In one year, she tripled her leads into the business and doubled top line revenue. She uh, went from speaking, being invited to speak on panels for free and having like, and she, by her own words, she, was, she said like men used to speak over me all the time and she's like, it was very annoying. She went from that to like keynoting, getting paid keynotes for conferences and all those men in the audience watching her and listening her, to her instead of talking over her. 
Um, she like signed some of the biggest clients in retail. So like Macy's is a client of hers now, uh, Chanel, like the biggest people in retail are her clients now. And now she is basically the expert, the number one thought leader in pop-up retail. Cause there was no books about pop-up retail before. Right. Um, cause it's like kind of, it's a subcategory of a subcategory. Right. And so no right. publisher is going to, going to want a book about that, but she, she wrote the book on it. It's probably only sold a thousand, 2000 copies. But she now is like on, all, she's on Cheddar all the time. She's on CNBC all the time. She's on, uh, there's a New York TV show about fashion and that sort of industry. She's on all the time. She is like the go-to person for this now. So you said a couple of things that are key there. And I've had the benefit of having this discussion with you uh, and really getting your deep insights on this. So I'd love to give everyone a mini MBA on this. And that is, I think you need to, when you're writing a book, you work with a lot of business authors. They need to start with the end in mind and understand the goal and the economics and what the industry looks like. And I think one of the things I heard you say is there's there's a difference on, on making a million dollars from your book versus making a million dollars on book sales. So can you really yes. walk uh, listeners through this so that they that they understand? I, I'm usually repeating what you've told me, but I'm sure it's much better coming directly right. from you because I think it's a really important point. You just in the last sentence mentioned that she sold 2,000 books, which would be by most publishers considered a, a failed book, yet she's making millions of dollars and has raised her profile. Yeah, exactly. So, so he, here's the thing. The model for book marketing for most people that they have in their head is our famous authors, right? They think about, when they think about a book, they think Seth Godin or Tim Ferriss or Malcolm Gladwell, right? And that's true. Those are famous authors. But the thing that they're forgetting is that those people are professional writers. They make their living from selling copies of books. So the thing that they should be doing is writing broad books that appeal to a lot of people and then hustling like hell to move copies of them because that is literally their business. Whereas take someone like you, like you own a company, right? And your company is how you make money. That's your day job. A book is a thing that you want to add to that, right? So the difference can be summed up. The book is the thing that Tim Ferriss markets. For you, a book is a thing that helps you market yourself and your company. A book is a tool a marketing tool for you, whereas the book is the product for Tim Ferriss, right? So for someone like Melissa or like you, what a book does, you can make hundreds of thousands from speaking. And even if you speak for free, you can sell millions of dollars worth of consulting or services or whatever to people in the audience. You can use that book as a hook to get media attention, which converts into both authority and business. You can use the book to help get meetings, to help close deals. I mean, there's a million things. The book, think about this. What marketing material will people pay for and sit down and then consciously read? Almost none. No one would do that with a brochure or something like that, right? But yeah. with a book, if it's done well, that's exactly what they do. You know, even if they don't pay for it, they'll, a hardcover book, they will take it and value it as if it, they had paid $25 for it because that's the perceived value of it. It's $25, right? That's what a hardcover costs. Right. And so you hand them a hardcover and they're going to think, oh, wow, this is really cool. This guy just gave me $25. I better take this seriously. Then they're going to read at least some of it usually. They're going to look at the cover, right? And so they're going to judge you by the cover. Is the cover professional? And if it is, they're going to think more of you. 
you know, they're going to read kind of the back cover and they're going to look at who gave you blurbs and they're going to look at what the cover copy or the back cover copy says. And if it's good, they're going to think better of you. Right. And then if they start reading it and like in your case, Bob, how many clients already have you guys signed or, or are going to sign who like think, well, maybe we can do this or man, maybe, uh, maybe uh, I'm not sure what they do. And then they read your book and they're like, oh, this is brilliant what they do. This guy obviously knows what he's talking about. Why the hell would I do this myself? I'm just going to hire him. Yeah, we should hire the people that wrote the book. Exactly. That's the thing. When the media is looking for an expert or when clients are looking for experts, how do you define an expert? By definition, it's the person who wrote the book. You know, even if you are, if you are an expert, you can get away with it for a long time without having a book. There's no doubt. But you're always going to finish second to the person who has the book in your field because they're the certified expert. Because that's the thing with the book too, man, is that like it proves you know what you – getting published is not enough. It used to be if you had a book at all, that was good enough. That day has passed. Now you, your book has to be good and it has to be applicable and it has to show your professionalism and your intelligence and your ability. But if you're a professional who's been doing this for 10 or 20 years and that shouldn't be a problem, you know? Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, didn't you say that, that having a book is a new, the new master's degree? Yeah, I, I, what I said, it was, uh, people used to say a book is a business card. And I think that was true for a while. But now that it's not true, it, or it, think about that. You can, anyone can go to Home Depot and buy a business card. So like having a business card doesn't make you a professional and it's not really, a, it's not a valuable credential. It's not an honest signal of credibility because yeah. anyone can just buy it, right? But a cool thing about a book is, now look, on one hand, anyone can just 
buy a book, you know, and not with us because you've got to know what you're doing to work with us. But you, you can go hire some other, there's down market companies that you can hire that will just spit out a book for you, right? But that's the thing about a, about a book is people can read it and they can judge you based on it. And if your book is bad, then they're going to not hire you and they're going to think less of you as they should. So it, it's like a way for people to credential you themselves. It's an honest signal of your ability and your intelligence and your experience and your authority. That's why it's so valuable, especially to people who know what they're doing. Can you give a quick lesson? So I know there's going to be some people there. There's a lot of ego. You were a New York Times bestseller. There's a lot of ego around getting on these bestsellers lists. Or I'm, I'm the Again, I'm not a professional writer. I'm the head of a business. I'm going to write a book. I want to get signed by a publishing house. Will you explain, because I, I don't think I really understood this until I lived through it, the reality of what that is going to look like for most first-time authors? <laughs> Dude, well, I'm laughing because how many calls did we have to have on this yeah. before you believed me? <laughs> like it was three or four or five? Everyone's got to go through their own pain. I did too. I had to do it with my company too and a different thing. Um, so yeah, so here's the thing. Again, it gets back to what is your model for a book success? If your model is Tim Ferriss or Seth Godin, then you need to build a big audience so you can sell a lot of copies and then you should worry about hitting the bestseller list because that's a credential that matters to authors, to professional writers, sorry. Yeah. But if, if you are uh, just an author and if you have a day job and the book is a, a marketing tool that you use to make your day job better, then the credential that you need to worry about is, is it attractive to uh, the people that I'm trying to bring to me? So for someone like you, it would be, you know, does your book, is your book relevant to people who are thinking about uh, partnership programs, yep. you know, whether it's CMOs or anyone like, whereas like there's no possible way that that book is going to sell, um, you know, you're going to have to sell 10 to 20,000 copies the first week to hit the best of list. Yeah, well, that's what I think. Walk people through the economics, what they're likely to, if they got okay. a publishing okay. author as a first-time author, what it's going to look like and what they're responsible for. Because I don't, I don't know that people realize, and, and I realized this after writing a book, that I think marketing is probably 70% of the work of, of, <laughs> of the whole project. Uh, and, and I don't think people perceive that. I think they say, oh, well, if I get a publisher, they'll do everything and it'll be great. No, publishers don't do anything. Like they do nothing basically. So, all right, so here's how it works. First off, uh, getting a deal, everyone thinks, oh yeah, once I get a deal, don't, you can't skip over the getting a deal part. At this point in the history of publishing, the only way you're getting a publishing deal is if you have a pre-existing audience that the, you can convince the publisher that they, you have 25,000 people, pre-existing audience who are ready to buy your book. That's basically the, the standard. That's the benchmark. If you don't have 25,000 people sitting there ready to buy your book, it, like we well, have to convince them it's true. Whether it's true or not actually doesn't matter. You have to can tell a good story, right? If you can tell that story, then you can get a deal. If you can't tell that story, you cannot get a deal. And I, I would say, and I, I'll tell you, like we've, We've worked with seven, 800 authors now, and we've taken 10 of them through the traditional publishing process. We can do that, uh, and we, we will, with people for whom it makes sense. But the only people that we'll even take on are ones that like have big email lists, they have big social media followings, or they have some other channel that they can guarantee 
sort of book sales. Like one of the people we work with is Joey Coleman, who you might know. Yeah. He's a huge keynote speaker. He, he takes, you know, makes 30, 40 grand a keynote speech and he doesn't have a book yet. So to make 30 or 40 as a keynote uh, speaker without a book is unheard of. And just the speeches he had booked when we went out to publishers, if he took his fees and books sold, he was looking at 50,000 books sold. So getting a book deal was super easy for him. Even though he didn't have an email list, he had a channel to sell books that was basically guaranteed. Right. He can go to all those conferences and say, pay me buy, buy $40,000 worth of books and I will come. And then it drives his sales. Exactly. And, and then they pass the books out and, and all that kind of stuff. So yes, exactly. So you have to have a, a, a media channel, an audience that you have a, as a permission asset. That's number one. Now, let's say you have that, right? Let's say you have a 50, 100,000 person email list, right? So then the next question becomes, uh, can you get a deal? Yes, you almost certainly can get a deal. But then it becomes like a pain in the ass because you don't own the rights to the book. You don't own the royalties to the book. What the publisher is expecting you to do is to go sell that book to not just your audience, but other audiences. And all, what the publisher is going to do is, we're talking about a traditional publisher like HarperCollins or Random House. They're going to give you an editor who, is, who has literally 30 or 40 other books in, in progress. So they're going to you know, give you a few content edits probably, and that's about it. So they'll copy edit uh, the book. They will help design the cover. Although most of the time their cover designers are really bad. They will hire the world-class uh, freelance cover designers if they are really into your book. So the, I'll, I mean, I'll tell you, like, there's about 10 book cover designers that do all the best book covers in the world. We work with six of them at Book in a Box, and they're all freelance. So like, we, we hire the same people they do. And they won't go out. They have their inside people, but their inside people are terrible. So all the good people leave. So they have to hire them freelance. So you can tell how much they believe in your book by who they have designing your cover. Uh, they'll do that. Then they'll they'll put it in bookstores. Like they'll they'll get uh, bookstores to cover uh, to carry it. And again, how many bookstores carry it is entirely dependent on how confident they are it's going to sell copies and how many pre-orders you've driven to your list and all that kind of stuff, right? So like if you if they're not confident in your book, then like it'll be in. 10 or 15 or 20% of bookstores. If they're super confident in your book and they really push it, it'll be in 90 or 95% of bookstores. Totally depends. Um, then they will, they have a marketing person, but again, if you're good at PR, you're not working for a book company for a hundred grand a year. You own your own agency and you're making 500 grand a year, right? They'll do something, they'll, they'll try to do something, but it's usually really bad. Unless you're one of their top one or two books, uh, they're not gonna, do much of it. They might book you on like a radio tour, which is like awful. You sit in the studio and then you get beamed into like, you know, the Topeka morning drive and they're like, Bob, tell us your pick for the Super Bowl. And you're like, what the hell are you talking about? My book's about performance marketing. And you know, like it's that sort of thing. That's basically it, man. Uh, and, and the other thing it gets you is that it does get you some prestige with some media, like the New York Times, if they were likely to cover the topic of your book, if you're published with Harper or Random House or whatever, then they're more likely to cover it than if it's self-published, but not a whole lot. You know, it maybe gives you increases your odds 25 to 50%. And that's only if they were likely to do it otherwise. We've gotten to the point in history where pretty much no one outside of the gray old lady media like New York Times cares who published the book or or, or anything like that. They care how professional the book is. That's super important. Right. Does your cover look good? All that sort of stuff. And the list. Oh, so the, so the list. So sorry. So getting on the list. The only way you can get on the list 
because the New York Times is like the most elitist. That list is ridiculous, dude. Gabby Bernstein, who's like, do you know, she's like super big in health. She's been a number one New York Times bestseller before. Her book just came out. It sold 40,000 copies the first week and the New York Times wouldn't put her on the list. They wouldn't put her on the list because they don't say, but the list is an edited curated list. It is not a list of best-selling books because by best-selling books, it would have been number one. Gabby's would have been number one. And, and they actually lost a court case about this. They don't pretend that it's a list of best-selling books. They say very explicitly that it is an edited curated list. It is the books that the New York Times thinks is important, right? And so even if you can write a book that, that you can convince the New York Times is important, then you've got to sell basically, sometimes you can squeak by selling 5,000 books to get on the list, but normally you're going to have to move 10,000 to be sure. And so 10,000 books in the first week, unless you have that audience, then you got to go buy those books yourself. And we don't do this as a company, but there are shady companies out there that will like essentially manage that process for you and help you buy 10,000 books because they've all got to be through bookstore reporting They've got to be through places that report their sales to the Times, which are independent bookstores, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, places like that, right? So it's it's this massive, ridiculous system that is all gamed basically, just to make people feel good about like status with their book, and has nothing to do with impact, nothing, like nothing. At all. We've had a couple of authors who published with us, and then against my advice, went and like kind of played the New York Times bestseller game. And not Tiffany Haddish. She published with a traditional publisher. They played that game. And one of them even got like basically bought their book onto the list. And he had a big company. And literally, he called me back six months later. He's like, dude, I wasted a quarter million dollars. Like there was no reason for me to do this. Like it was just ego. Like it didn't move the needle with business at all. Because what he did was he... He, he positioned his book to a broad audience that he thought would make the New York Times happy instead of focusing his book on who his customers were. And so he's, he's actually doing his second book with us now, and now he's listening. Bless his heart that he has enough humility to realize, oh, wow, if I want to have a business impact, I can, or if I want to try and be famous, I can, but I can't do both at the same time. Does that make sense? I think that's a great point. And there's a quote that I love, and, and when people have now asked me advice about this, I'm just channeling... A lot of your stuff, but I, it's what I would give in general around start with the end in mind. What is it that you're trying to achieve with thought leadership or with a book? And think about that because that will determine which way you go. I think it sounds like the notion that a, a first-time writer will write a New York Times bestselling book, that's like LeBron James, you know, making the NBA. It's <laughs> that's very rare. You know, or, 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 or Facebook. I once heard the founder of 37 Signals talking about this in the respect of why businesses should make money. And he said, because every, and he was equating it to like LeBron James making it to the NBA. And he said, because every 10 years, there'll be a Facebook or an Amazon, but everyone else should really stay in school because <laughs> they're going to need their education. And he was correlating that to, yep. you should make profit. And I think, you know, that's what you're saying too, that, that you know, the chance of, of just coming out of nowhere and, and obviously the I think in those cases, it's the content is extraordinary and it markets itself, but that is the exception and not the rule. Well, it gets back to your first question. What are you trying to do with your book? Right. And what I was trying to explain is if you are a business person, then a book has a different purpose for you than if you are a professional writer. Yeah. And so all of the models of book that you import over from professional writer don't work for you as a business person. Yeah. They're wrong. 
And so like a huge part of what we have to do as a company is educate people on newer, better models that work for them and their purposes. Yeah, Seth Godin, you're saying only I mean, he gets paid to speak, but he gets paid to write books, right? So that's... Exactly. He's a professional writer. His money comes from writing books, whereas you, like, you've sold copies of your books. You've done pretty well. And so it's, it's awesome. Think, it's all, you should look at it like a bonus. Like, oh, wow, this is marketing that actually partially pays for itself right. just in terms of like, like this is paid lead gen, you know? But the real benefit for you is signing, you know, Adidas and Reebok and Dell and other Fortune 500 companies to work with you. Absolutely. So you are passionate about this subject. You're the founder. You were the CEO for a few years. What did you learn sitting in that seat? And then we'll talk about why you decided to fire yourself uh, from that seat. But what, what did yeah. you learn you liked about being the CEO and not like about being the CEO? Nothing. I didn't like anything about it. That's not true. So, no, I got to be I got to be more honest. There is one thing I liked. The title. And when I realized that's what that's what exactly the status. Everything I was just railing against that authors come in thinking they want, I fell victim to the exact same thing in my own life for a different thing. Because, you know, like from the outside, the sexy people, the ones who get all the press and all the, the status are the CEOs, right? So I'm like, well, of course I'll be CEO. I'm smart. I'm good at things. I've accomplished all this stuff in other parts of my life. Why can't I run a company? And then I got into it and I realized, oh, wow, the skill set you have to have to start a company is one thing, but to scale a company, the skill set you need is not the skill set I have like, at all. I'm very bad, actually, at the things you have to be good at to scale a company. Well, you have to you have to both have the ability and you have to want it, right? I think a lot of people, like you said, their ego makes them think they want it, but it's not actually what they want to be doing on their day to day. You know what I wanted, man? To be totally frank, I wanted the status of being a CEO, but I didn't want to do the work. It's everything I criticized Melissa about in the story, the first story I told. I was completely doing what I was accusing other people of doing. It was terrible. So what was the what was the moment when you decided I need to not be CEO? I mean, because most most I think companies go down in flames because the founder doesn't come to this realization. But what was the what was the proverbial sort of needle in the haystack for you? There, it, it wasn't one moment. There was a series of moments, but uh, I can tell you what the time that it really hit me in the, in the face were. Um, the guy who replaced me, JT McCormick, uh, he's our CEO now. I had already met him. Like He was a client of ours, and I went to his office. He, runs, he used to run a $100 million software company in Austin. And I went over, I did his, you know, instead of doing a sales call, I, I went to his office because he's in town. And like walking into that office and watching the way he interacted with his staff and just like looking at him, I knew, okay, this is what a CEO looks like. And that is not what I'm doing <laughs> at all. And so after the meet, like, like he, I sold him in the room um, easily because he knew he wanted to write a book. So it was like kind of simple. And so um, walking out, I kind of jokingly said, Hey man, like, you know, you, you're obviously, you've got this CEO thing nailed. I'm kind of just learning this. You got to help me out, man. Like I'll, I'll do your book and I'll make sure it's amazing, but you got to help me be an amazing CEO. And JT, he kind of stopped and he looked at me. He's like, are you serious about this? Because I'll help, but you got to be serious. I mean, he was really serious when he said that. I'm like, yeah, like I was kind of taken aback. But I'm like, yeah, I'm serious. He's like, okay, I'm going to call you every time I have a thought. Every time I interact with your company and I have a thought about your service or your process, I'm going to call you and tell you what it is. I'm like, oh, that, that'd be amazing. And so like, 
Like, dude, he was serious, man. Like, there were, every time I would see his name on my phone, my heart would sink because he would say like one or two good things and then he would list off 15 things we were doing wrong or we could get better. And he was right about everything. It was not like he wasn't being critical or mean. It was like, oh man, he's so right about that. Or, oh, how do we not see that? Or something like that. And so then I asked him to come to an executive meeting. It was me, my uh, Zach, co-founder, and kind of our director of ops at the time. By the end of that meeting, dude, he had taken over the meeting. He was running the meeting, but it felt like the most natural thing on earth. Like It was like, oh, of course he should be running this meeting. He wasn't like pushing in. It was just like, it was who he was. And that was like when I knew, okay, I'm not the CEO. We need to get someone like him. And I didn't even think we could get him. We did get him, luckily, thank God. But that was when, it was when he did my job better than me in front of me that I just kind of let go. And I thought, you know what? I'm good at other things. I need to focus on those things. I need to let go of this ego thing and just stop trying to be what I'm not. So for all the founders out there who are listening to this, sitting there uncomfortably being like, I need to do this, tell them about your new job and what what is... What does the founder role when you bring in someone to be the CEO role look like? And what do you like about it? And what what's different? Yeah, mostly I just sit around and hope for the best, you know? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> That'd be a great job. Uh, well, you, you know, I actually, before you let you answer that, I, I just wrote an article last week how every business owner owns two businesses and they don't realize it. The business of the product and then the business of the business, I think... A lot of times the founders really love the product, right? And what they need is someone to work on the business of the business, which is not the stuff that they like or want to do. Yeah, you're exactly right. I basically had a product now. Like my job is I am hands in the mud, um, deeply involved. At this point, we've got our book in a box product pretty dialed in. Um, it's not perfect at all, but we, we have kind of a head of book in a box that works really closely with me, but she... Uh, like Megan McCracken is her name. She's really good. She kind of owns that. And so I'm developing new products now. So our next thing is going to be book coaching. So it's our exact process, except you spend two days in office with us, like a workshop. And we kind of work you through the positioning and the outline, like, you know, 20 or 40 people in a group. And then we kind of give you your writing plan accountability. We assign you an editor and you pay like five grand and you basically get our process, except you do most of the work yourself instead of it being, an interview process, uh, it's a guided coaching process. And so developing that process has been like my focus for the last uh, two months. And it's awesome, dude. Like you can hear the energy, like I'm excited and energetic because like I get up every day and I work on stuff that's like super exciting to me. Like do creating new things and solving those problems is super exciting. Taking solved problems and then scaling them as a business is like <laughs> the worst. It's like torture to me. It's the worst. I can't do it and I hate it. Well, you're one of the few people to, I think, acknowledge that uh, openly and, and, and be vulnerable about it. In fact, Tucker wrote a great post titled, um, I probably need to censor this, but from bleep uh, hole to CEO, which we'll include in the, in the show notes for this episode, where he really openly talks about how he made this decision and why it was the right one and when he knew he wasn't the right person to be CEO. And you've gotten some good attention with that article. Yeah, well, because I think a lot of people, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs feel that. Yeah. It, the conflict of like, this is the thing I think I'm supposed to want, but I'm doing it and now I hate it. And so what do I do now? Um, most of the happy entrepreneurs I know have 
at, at a minimum, they brought in a COO or a director of ops. And so even though they're CEO and title, they spend most of their time on the function of the business that they love. Yeah. You know, the other thing that, that JT does, man, that I was really not good at, that I didn't even understand I was bad at until I saw him, is leading people. Like, I'm pretty good at inspiring. Like, I can give a great speech. I can recruit. I can sell. Like, I can sell all day long, right? That's easy for me. But JT, leading and selling are totally different things. Leading is about really, truly putting people first. It's about coaching and mentoring and working with them, like, on the basics and the fundamentals and, like, the little things. And I got to be honest, man, that, that stuff is really tedious and hard for me. And it's, I, I just, I hate it. But JT loves it. He, nothing makes him happier than helping people get better. But you, you've continued to also own really the culture side. I mean, you put the entire company's culture doctrine online in a Google Doc and let people comment on it. Is yeah. that still where it lives? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, our culture is pretty amazing. Like, I... I definitely work on the philosophy of the culture, but that emerges organically from who we are. My job is kind of to like record that and systematize it and think about it, but I don't, it doesn't go top down. Our culture comes bottom up. You know, I think there are a lot of similar elements in, in our cultures. What, what do you think are the core elements that a culture needs to have in the, in, in, for a business to be successful these days as work, the nature of work really, really shifts? Yeah. So, um, so the way we, we structure our culture doc, um, and you, if you want to link it, obviously you can. I mean, it's public. But the, yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. So we, we only have three values. And then from that, we've derived like 10, I think, I think we're up to 10 principles, right? So um, a value is basically like what you believe to be true, and a principle is sort of how you apply that, right? So our three values are very simple. Uh, we value results, we value people, and we value learning. Um, so results because we are a business, right? Like we, we all love each other. We consider ourselves a tribe, but we also recognize that we're not like we're a work tribe and not a family, you know, cause family is like about unconditional love and acceptance and all that kind of stuff. That's not true in work and work. You got to carry your weight, you know, cause that's the whole point of this tribe existing is to do this work. And so results are super important. Like we always anchor off. We all have a job to do and we have to do our job or we just don't belong in the tribe. And then the second part is people. Um, and we put people second because like we understand like if we don't get results, then we don't exist. But as soon as we're getting results, then we have to understand that the only reason we're working is because we're, we care about what we do and how it impacts people. And so we always want to keep people in the front of mind, like and not like in a vague way, like like our principles are things like do right by people, you know, like they're operational. Yeah, they're not idealistic. Yeah. Right, right. It's, it's so many companies pay lip service to people, but then when it comes down to it, they put process and procedure and other stuff in front of people. We don't do that. We refuse to do that. Everything is, are we doing the right thing by our people or not? And, and if the answer is no, then we change until we are. Uh, and then the third one is learning. And I think learning is, eventually learning is going to be very important for everybody. But for us, it's crucial because the way we do things today is almost certainly going to be different than the way we do them tomorrow and the day after and the day after, right? So like we have got to, at the core of our being, we, it's got to be part of our culture that we're always not just trying to get better, but we're always willing to change. And so like the principle we have that, that example, we got a couple, but there's one that really summarizes that. It's called uh, the glass is already broken. It's from this Buddhist story about like um, this Buddhist scholar who basically said, 
it sums up to, he said, you can understand Buddhism if you understand that this glass hold, that's sitting on the table holding water is already broken. And people are like, what do you mean? And like, well, whether it's in five seconds or 500 years, this glass will break. And I know that, that it will break at some point. And so knowing that, I'm able to enjoy it and appreciate it for what it is without clinging to what it could, what I wish it could be, but it never can be. And so like, that's at the core of our being. Every process, every procedure, everything we do can be different and will be different. We know it's all going to change. We like, we have to do it in the moment, but we also know it'll be different tomorrow. So we're all looking for ways to make everything better uh, all the time. And I think most businesses, whether you know it or not, are like, close to obsolescence if you're not thinking that way you know like people are always going to write books people are always going to share ideas we're in the business of helping people share their ideas and maybe it won't be books in 10 years or 20 years you know or maybe books will be a small part of it if you're not evolving if you the, my my favorite quote is by uh, a general that says if you don't like change you'll like irrelevance even less yeah right <laughs> i forget who said you're either growing or you're dying but yeah. that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was that, that was a yeah that was a sports coach. So la- last question for you. This is the Outperform podcast. Tell us um, what are the, some of the things that you've done or you know, you've accomplished a lot. And what, so what have you done to work on yourself physically, emotionally, and mentally to outperform both your own expectations and the competition? Oh, dude, that's a great question. There's so much I could talk about. Um, Okay. What are your top couple hacks? You say this, I do this and this allows me to outperform. All right. So I'll, I'll let you pick. I can go one of two ways. I can give <laughs> I like you like, I, I, all right. I can give you like my top two or three like hack type things where it's like, you need to do this thing this way because of this reason. Or I can talk a little bit about like, I think I've kind of broken through to a new frame recently and I can talk a little bit about how I like, I see the world, I think, in a different way now than I did a while ago, and it's had, I think, a huge impact on my life. Let's go. Let's go with the second part because I, I think I've been on a similar journey, and I think it's for a lot of people the key to really getting ahead is pulling it all back and figure out what it is that you want. And if that story is related to that, I'd, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, all right. So, this is relatively still raw in my head, but one of the things that I think I realized is how core identity is to our perception, not just our perception of ourselves, but our perception of our limits and our abilities and our deeply unconscious sort of traits, right? And I knew that intellectually. Like I've known that for a long time. I've done a lot of psychotherapy and a lot of, you know, other things. And and like that's, everyone says they know that, right? But um, I didn't really fully deeply understand how many limits I put on myself and they were all unconscious, of course, until I really started unpacking both what I wanted from life and what I was doing, what I was doing or not doing to get me there, right? So the thing that I've done over the last three months is I've really unpacked, okay, I've gotten very specific. Where exactly am I trying to get to? Not vaguely, like directly. What, you know, where do I want to live? What do I want my family life to be like? What do I want my relationship with my wife to be like? What do I want my company to be like? What do I want my relationship to my company to be like? And I had to be very specific about where I wanted to go. And then unpack, did I actually want that? Which for me, because I think about that stuff a lot, 
that was just getting specific about things that I, I knew broadly. But for some people, even sitting down and asking that those questions, they, they, most people don't do those. Um, but I had to get much more specific. And then I had to really unpack what was I doing to advance that goal or what was I doing that was not advancing that goal? And I'll give you one that's not business related. That's like, like the, the one that really rocked me was, um, was my relationship with my wife. We have a great relationship, but when I sat down and thought about where I wanted that relationship to be in 10 years, and I thought about what was I doing today and tomorrow and this week and this month to put it where I wanted it in 10 years, I realized I wasn't doing It was great now, but I wasn't, it's like what we just said, it's growing or dying, right? I wasn't doing anything to consciously grow it. And in fact, I was doing some things that were unconsciously, subconsciously eating away at the relationship, right? Yeah. And so uh, I had to like first unpack, okay, what am I doing that's eating away at it? Why am I doing that? Because it's, it's all my baggage. Like my wife and I really have an amazing relationship. The only problem with our relationship is baggage either that she brings in or I bring in and how that baggage interacts with the relationship, right? And so like for us to have, a, the foundation of a great relationship for us is us working on our own things. Uh, whether it's together or in tandem, we got to work on, identify them and work on them. So I had some things like with vulnerability and opening up and trust with her that I was not, I, I just wasn't dealing with my baggage, right? And so I had to start dealing with that very specifically, um, which I'm in the process of doing. It's not like it's done. It's never really done, but I'm doing it. And then the other thing was I had to, uh, we had to sit down and think, okay, we want to be here what else do we have to do to make sure we start going in that direction? And so we started adding things to our life that are like very consciously going to push us in the direction we want to go. Yeah. And it really, it ties that quote we were talking before about uh, start with the end in mind and really thinking about what it is that you want. And I think a lot of us are doing a lot of things that really we are not congruous with either what we say we want or what we really want. And, and when you figure that stuff out, it, it's amazing how it becomes really clear about what you should be doing more of and what you need to stop doing. I mean, I've had a, a lot of stop doings the last few weeks as, as I've tried to pare back stuff and, and get to the core. So it makes a lot of sense. Well, I, we could talk forever, but I uh, want to make sure we, we wrap up here and, um, you know, you're an incredible ambassador for thought leadership and helping people get more out of out of their own lives and, and elevate their statuses in the world. And I'm a big believer that we grow the most when we step back, look at our failures and focus on strengths. And clearly that's something you've been able to do really well and describes a lot of your your success. So thanks for being so honest about your journey and sharing it on Outperform. Speaking of honesty, if you enjoyed this episode or outperform in general, we'd love your honest feedback by rating it on iTunes or in the review. And so to our listeners, we'll include links to Book in a Box's site, Tucker's personal website, and some of the things we talked about more in our show notes. And until next time, thanks for listening and uh, keep outperforming. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. 
On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.